Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, and we pray now that he would open our eyes and our ears so we can see and hear what you're saying to us now and what it means for us in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are an international church family. We've seen evidence of that this morning. We are a, an ideal group of people to test the question, do British people always say what they mean? It turns out, apparently, the answer is no. Who knew? Uh, there's a handy table that you might have seen that does the rounds on uh, social media. Um, and uh, it, it helps you to interpret things. So <clears throat> I, I thought putting it on the screen, but it's too small, so I put that on instead. But it says, what, uh, so when the British say, with the greatest respect, the British mean, I think you're an idiot, apparently. But others understand, he's listening to me. Uh, when the British say, that's not bad, uh, they mean it's quite, it's good. Uh, but others understand that it's not very good. Uh, when the British say, it's quite good, they mean it's a bit disappointing. Uh, but others obviously understand that they mean it's quite good. Um, when they say, it's, uh, I was a bit disappointed that such and such happened, they mean I'm, I'm pretty annoyed that <laughs> it happened. Uh, but others will hear, I, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, when the British say it's, uh, something's very interesting, uh, the British mean it's clearly nonsense. Um, but others will hear that they are um, impressed by what they've seen. When the British say, I'm sure it's my fault, they mean it's your fault. <laughs> we know that one, don't we? Uh, whereas others will be sitting there thinking, well, why do they think it's their fault? When, uh, this is the last one, when they say, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, they mean I'm right, don't contradict me. Um, whereas, of course, others here, I may be wrong, please let me know. So, uh, you, you get the point. Now, I, I, wish, I know some people are probably relatively new in, in the UK, and I want to reassure you, uh, it's not always like that, and maybe that's what makes it fun. Um, but um, we can debate the accuracy of the uh, statements later on. But it is true, isn't it? One of the greatest barriers to human beings getting along is clear communication. Uh, couples, companies, cabinets, cultures, countries all struggle in different ways and at different levels to understand each other. And the result on all levels is, is two things. It's compartmentalization and conflict. Now, we don't have to look very far around us in the world today to see both of those things everywhere. Compartmentalization, uh, cutting ourselves off from one another, and then conflict, coming together um, in conflict. In, in January 2020, which, think about it, was just a couple of months before the first lockdown, there was a survey of um, American adults, and it revealed that three out of five American adults reported feeling lonely. That was just before the pandemic. And among 18 to 22-year-olds, that rose to a staggering 79% reported feeling lonely. Now, that was January 2020. Think what the results would be now after two years of even greater restrictions on our ability just to communicate with each other and be alongside one another. And I'm sure the results would be similar here in the UK. 
Uh, they remind us, don't they, that if, if we think getting back to normal, whatever that means, post-pandemic, is going to solve all our problems, if we could just get back to where we were two years ago, everything will be fine. Well, no, I don't think it would be. So that is compartmentalisation, one of the results of our inability to communicate. But the flip side of that is conflict. To, uh, our, our inability to understand one another and communicate leads to the ugliest effects that we see all the time in our politics, in our social media, our global relationships and our personal relationships. And the first reading that we heard from Genesis begins to explain what is going on. We heard the story of the Tower of Babel from those uh, early chapters of Genesis. Mankind come together and they try and build a tower to reach up to heaven. And as mankind has often done, the issue is that Mankind is acting as if they can do without God. So in Genesis, it is God who gives Adam his name. But Adam then gets to name the animals and uh, even to name the woman that God makes for him. But God names him. So there's that sense that fundamentally mankind, first of all, gets its identity. It's not something that mankind makes up for themselves comes from the God who made us. But here they are in, in Genesis chapter 11, and they are determined to make a name for themselves. That's what the, in Genesis we read is going on. As they come together to build this tower, they want to make a name for themselves. <clears throat> we can do without God. We don't need to look to him to tell us who we are. So John F. Kennedy, uh, a few months before he died, in fact, said, man can be as big as he wants. Our problems are man-made, and so they can be solved by man. That's what he said way back in 1963. Well, the Bible disagrees with that assessment. Did you hear the way the reading talks about God coming down to have a look at this tower that they were building, kind of as if, it, you know, it's obviously a picture of the situation, but it's as if, you know, all the way down there, he's kind of peering down. What are they doing down there? Oh, they're building a tower. You know, that's the kind of picture that you get. And his response to human beings coming together in that way is, is actually an act of love because he restrains human beings from making an even bigger mess. By ignoring him, by coming together in that way, he steps in to scatter them and by making it so that they cannot cooperate without reference to him because it, they need to see how ridiculous it is to try and go their own way without him. And the result then is the problem of miscommunication and conflict and war. But the story doesn't then end there. The rest of the Bible's story, beginning in the very next chapter in Genesis, is the account of how, despite our rebellion against him, God stepped in to make things right. He started with this one man, Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. From Abraham came a whole people, Israel, but Israel, like the rest of mankind, continued to rebel against God, and so God finally sent his own son to do what both Adam and Israel had failed to do, and to put God's rescue plan for human beings into effect once and for all by dying and rising from the dead. And by the time we arrive at the beginning of the book of Acts, where we're focusing for the rest of our time now, Jesus has died and he's risen and he's ascended to heaven, and now he sends the Holy Spirit. And what we see here in these verses is how the coming of the Holy Spirit on God's people is the final act of the drama of how God is dealing 
with the deepest problems that we face. And dealing with the issues of conflict and miscommunication, compartmentalization. And dealing with the way that we are in conflict, not just with one another, but fundamentally with him. And he's dealing with all of that. Back in chapter 1, verse 8 in the book of Acts, we've seen in the last couple of weeks, Jesus promised, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And now chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, says Luke, we hear of how the Holy Spirit came as Jesus had promised. So what did the Holy Spirit bring at Pentecost? How does the Holy Spirit address the problems that we've been thinking about? If, you're, if you've got the notice sheet, you'll see on the back a couple of headings there. If that helps you to follow, we'll put it on the screen as well. What does the Holy Spirit bring? First, verses 1 to 4, reconnection to God. Reconnection to God. Pentecost was an Old Testament festival. It was originally a kind of harvest festival, 50 days after Passover. But here in Acts, the people of God are gathered on the day that many Jews are in Jerusalem because of the festival. And suddenly, and they're gathered, the people of God, we're not quite sure where, but they're gathered, and suddenly there's this sound like a mighty wind, and these things that seemed like tongues of fire come and rest on them. And just note those words, it's like a mighty wind. It's what seemed to be tongues of fire, he says. In other words, Luke is just kind of thinking, how do I describe what, what I've been told happened? It, it's, it's not something you can easily put into words. It's not something that is ordinary. Now, wind and fire are both things that the Bible associates with God appearing in some way to individuals. In the book of Exodus, God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. He guided his people with a pillar of fire. And then there was a great wind that parted the Red Sea. And, and Luke confirms in verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The one the Father and the Son promised to send. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. Je Jesus was God on earth, but before he left, he promised he would send another counsellor like him. And we heard that promise again in chapter 1, verse 8. And now, that promised Holy Spirit has come. Remember back in, in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, which we've just seen, the issue was human beings kind of trying to work their way up to the level of God. You know, in one sense, trying to make themselves equal with him so they can do without him. But now, do you see, the opposite has happened. Do you see? What's happened? God has come down. First as a man, and now his spirit is poured out on his people. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is talked about, and he, he, he comes on specific individuals for specific tasks. But now he's poured out on all of God's people, kind of democratically, all receiving the Holy Spirit. Think of that group of 120 believers at this point, male, female, young and old, each receives the Holy Spirit. And this is massive news because the whole Old Testament has emphasized up to this point that God is holy and human beings are sinners. And God can't just come down and live inside his people. In the same way that kind of you put out wax in the sun and it melts. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. Well, so it is with God and human sin. 
And yet, God's desire, right from the start, from, you know, calling Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and, and onwards, God's plan and desire has been to reconnect with his people, to dwell with them again, as he did in the Garden of Eden. So how is that now possible for the Holy Spirit, for God the Holy Spirit to take up residence in each individual? Well, it's possible because of Jesus. So he has lived and died and risen from the dead. So that is why the Holy Spirit is sent now at this point. Because Jesus has done the work he needed to do to cleanse us. And so when his people trust in him, they are made clean, just like Richard has trusted in Jesus. And so now, because God poured out his Holy Spirit at the first Pentecost, anyone who trusts in Jesus has God the Holy Spirit living in them. So do you see, God the Holy Spirit reconnects us to God. We have him living inside us if we are trusting in Jesus. So now we can truly say we know God. We'll see later in Acts, it's not right to say that only some special Christians have the Holy Spirit, for example. Or that, you know, first of all, you have to become a Christian, and then later the Holy Spirit will come. Or you, ha- you might have to sort of have a second experience, a second baptism in the Holy Spirit or something, as if that's different thing. Remember, Acts isn't here to give us a blueprint of exactly how we should expect to live our lives today. It's here to record what happened at a key point in history. But because the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost... The result is anybody who trusts in Jesus today receives the Holy Spirit when we do the same. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit does not belong to Christ. It's one and the same thing. Believe in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, whoever you are. And the rest of the New Testament applies this profound truth in all kinds of different ways. Christians can get complacent about this, you know, and just think, oh, it's God, you know, God the Holy Spirit living in us. No, that's an extraordinary thing. The wind and the fire here are, are, remind us that this is no ordinary thing. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So realize it matters what you do with your body, he says. Don't be ruled by lust or by greed or by gluttony because you've got a new boss, a new master. Realize that saying no to sin is possible. You know, yes, we still battle with sin day by day, but change is possible because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Ask him to help you as you face temptation. And realize now that if you are a Christian, you can pray. That just means talking to God as your Heavenly Father because by his Spirit, he lives in you. In the power of the Spirit, you can pray through Jesus the Son and your Father in heaven will hear you because we are reconnected to him, each of us, if we're trusting in Jesus. Do you see? It's like a phone line that never goes dead. He never puts the phone down. He's always listening. Isn't that extraordinary? At home, at work, at school in pain and suffering, in joy and celebration. When we trust in Jesus, we are reconnected to God by the Holy Spirit living in us. So that is the first thing the Holy Spirit brought at Pentecost. And then we see, secondly, and finally, we see that he brought reconnection to one another. Reconnection to one another. God's 
Judgment at the Tower of Babel disconnected us from God, but it also disconnected us from each other. For so much of human history, we have lived with war and violence and isolation, with compartmentalization and conflict on an individual scale, on a global scale. But now, look at what happens. They begin to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit enables them. And verse 6, a crowd comes together in bewilderment because each one hears their own language being spoken. The crowd, we're told, comes from every nation under heaven. Uh, verse 5, and they're listed in verses 9 to 11. Effectively, it's every nation of the known world at that time. All around the Mediterranean, you know, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Greece, Egypt, Libya, Rome. Again, it's clear, it is a miracle. These are Galileans, they say, verse 7. You know, Galileans, they, they were northerners. Northerners. And they couldn't even speak Aramaic without using a funny accent. But now suddenly, these people, that they, everyone's sort of like, oh, you know, what, these funny people who've come. No, they sound like native speakers of these foreign languages. Now, in churches today, there's sometimes talk of speaking in tongues. And, and biblically, it's important to note that speaking in tongues refers here, as you can see, to speaking known languages, languages that other people understand. It's not unknown languages. And there are references later in Acts to speaking in tongues, which, again, seem to refer back to this episode that happens here. And later on in the New Testament, there is also talk of a gift of speaking in tongues. And it's, it's difficult to be entirely sure what that refers to. But it's not clear that it actually means a lot more than, once again, a kind of gift of speaking in known foreign languages. These languages which have divided human beings into compartments so they cannot understand each other. And the gift of being able to communicate across those barriers to reconnect God's people together. Do you see? And again, whatever, whatever it quite means, and obviously there's much more we could say about that, particularly about uh, what, you know, what Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians, but whatever is meant by that, again, it's not the one gift that all genuine Christians must have. It's one of many gifts, just like not every Christian has to have the gift of preaching or the gift of administration or the gift of playing the piano. Some have the gift of speaking in tongues in this way. And we shouldn't undervalue the gift of being able to communicate across language divides in such a way that people once separated are brought together again. again you know, not everyone has that gift. You know, you know the thing about the person who was trying to translate the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, into Russian. And uh, they use some kind of early version of Google Translate. Um, this is, I think this is, this is you know, quite a few years ago. And it came out as, the steak is rotten, but the vodka is excellent. <laughs> it's not great, is it? If you're relying, don't rely on Google Translate. Not everybody has the gift of being able to communicate across language divides like that. But it's great to be able to support those who do, and that, that's what we do here. We support the Lowry family working in Senegal with Wycliffe Bible translators. Again, using this gift of bringing people divided by 
not being able to understand each other across the language divide, bringing together so they can hear God in their own tongue. Now, exactly what happens here with these people here in Acts chapter 2 seems to be a temporary thing where they're suddenly able to kind of speak fluently in languages they previously didn't speak. It does seem to be a particularly miraculous temporary phenomenon, which is not surprising because this is a unique and special occasion when the Holy Spirit is poured out in this way that he has not been poured out before. So this is not, again, a blueprint for how everybody receives the Holy Spirit. Remember, we had that image last time of the building, and the found, this is the foundations of the building, and the church is then built up as a building, and we're kind of you know, a little feature halfway up. We don't look like the foundations. We, don't, uh, we, we aren't constructed in the same way. But the point here is, God's judgment of division and compartmentalization and conflict is now being reversed and undone. And on that day of Pentecost, we then see a foretaste of what will one day be true for every member of God's people for eternity. For now, at this point in Acts, did you notice, actually this is in the moment, it's just among Jews from all these different nations around the known world. But remember the theme verse, chapter 1, verse 8, where this is heading. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. The book of Revelation has a vision of people from every tribe and tongue, Jew and Gentile, who trust in Jesus, worshipping God together. Now compare what happens here in in Acts chapter 2, compare what happens here with with our own human attempts that we see so often in our world to solve these problems of compartmentalization and conflict among human beings. There's kind of two big ways of trying to solve these problems. There's, on the one hand, there's kind of multiculturalism, and on, on the other hand, there's kind of globalization. Now, obviously, these are you know, big terms. They mean lots of, of big things. But multiculturalism says effectively, well, actually, do you know what? The differences between human beings aren't really a problem. It's, it's not a problem. It's a feature. So let's, let's celebrate diversity and let's just let everyone exist happily in their own subculture. There's no need to kind of worry about trying to integrate everybody together. Now, the former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, uh, who died in 2020, he, he had previously in his life, he'd been an advocate of that kind of multiculturalism. But towards the end of his life, he wrote this. He said, multiculturalism has run its course and it's time to move on. It was a fine, it was even a noble idea at its time, in its time. It was designed to make ethnic and religious minorities feel more at home in society. But it has not led to integration, but to segregation. It was designed to promote tolerance. Instead, the result has been societies more abrasive, fractured, and intolerant than they once were. Do you see the point? You can understand, there's, a, there's, a, there's an understandable desire behind this idea of multiculturalism to say, we're not all the same, so let's not all try to be the same. But those who argued the most for it are beginning to, to sort of say, oh, but it, just saying that, it doesn't work, and you end up kind of not understanding each other and hating each other with a disintegrated society and no community. So what's the alternative then? Well, the other sort of big thing that people have then tried to argue for is this sort of idea of globalization instead. 
You know, whether it's attempting to get everyone everywhere to adopt some kind of universal Western liberal democracy or whatever it might be, or just simply kind of less than that, just sort of saying, well, why don't we just all choose to get along? Wouldn't that be great? But the recent, you know, the recent COP26 conference in Glasgow just emphasised, didn't it, how difficult it is to get people to agree voluntarily to do anything. Isn't that right? Even something as what appears to be as you know, relatively straightforward about uh, the planet. And then the alternative to that is to say, well, if we can't get people to do it voluntarily, we've got to sort of enforce it and make it happen. And then we're back to eradicating the differences between us and saying, well, we don't really care about the fact that we're different and have different values because we've all got to be the same in order to fit with this big agenda that we've decided is the one that we all ought to follow. Do you see the problem then? It just seems that in our own human attempts, it doesn't seem to be possible to have both true diversity and true unity without eradicating one or the other. Do you see but here, on this day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we see another possibility. That rather than human beings seeking to solve our own problems and failing, as we always have done, God has said, come and unite around me, he says. And what happens when people come together around him is... The cultures of the world don't then lose their diversity and their individual identity, you see. They continue to be able to express and, and, and worship God in their own language, but do you then see what unites them in verse 11? Do you see? They are declaring the wonders of God. They're praising him. See, when we try and remove God from the picture, what are we left to unite around? You know, someone will say, oh, well, let's, let's, just, let's just unite around our common humanity. Why don't we just do that? But then can we even agree what that means? You know, who gets to say what it means to be human if there is no God? Or why don't we just say, let's all just love one another? You know, we, all, we all know what love is, don't we? Let's just, let's just choose to love one another. But actually the whole point of the, you know, the history of the world tells us, doesn't it? That is exactly what we don't do and what we can't do. But when we unite in our diversity, as it were, around praising God, then everything falls into place. Because we're praising the one who made us. We're praising the one who knows each of us better than we know ourselves and who knows us in our diversity better than we know ourselves. If you want to see this in action in a particularly focused way, right here in Hampstead, come and visit our Japanese-speaking congregation, which meets at the moment once a month on the fourth Sunday of the month in the afternoon. And it's led by our Japanese mission partners, Katsutoshi and Yukiko. Now, I've been along a few times. I don't understand everything. But I do understand when I see brothers and sisters praising God. It's a wonderful thing. And actually, in all of church life, you know, not just across the 25 or so nationalities that we represent in our church family at the last count, actually, in all of church life, the key to kind of keeping together 
and keeping united across all the things that are different about us, the key to being united in those things is to be clear that it's declaring the wonders of God that will hold this diverse group of people together. Do you see? So the world, should, the world around us should look at us and go, well, what on earth brings these people together? You know, it should be obvious from how different we are from one another that it's not our background or our ethnicity or our nationality or our shared love of gardening or cookery or rugby or cycling or just you know, doing the North London cultural thing, whatever that is. It, it, shouldn't be, it should be obvious that it's not our job or our bank balance or even our opinions about what we should be doing about COVID. All of those things I've just mentioned, that we will be different about all of those things. But it should be obvious that the one thing that brings this diverse group of people together is declaring the wonders of God and praising him. Saying, you know, look at what he's done, sending his son, so that anyone from any nation, any background, can come on the same footing and put their faith in him. And, and notice, just notice it says, declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Think what that means. It means being able to say what God has done, not just in sending Jesus generally, but in what he's done for you or me personally, in the context of our lives and our backgrounds. And being able to share that, being able to declare that to the world around us, and we're thinking in our small groups, particularly this term, about how to do that better and what it looks like. Now, next time we will see Peter unpacking the significance of all this much more because the, the, the passage finishes and we stop kind of halfway, you know, halfway in the middle of a conversation here. But they go, what does this mean? And some say they've had too much wine. But Peter stands up and uh, gives a particular explanation that we need to look at next time. And by the end of chapter 2, thousands, in response to what Peter has said, thousands have been baptized. Now, we managed one this morning. But for us, this, these, these first 13 verses in Acts chapter 2 are a reminder that the church now is to be a foretaste of that diversity in unity around declaring the praises of God. So let it, let's keep on keeping declaring God's praises at the centre of who we are as a church as he then uses us to reach every nation of the world. Let's pray now. Father God, we praise you for this vision of your people united in our differences around declaring how good you are, declaring what you've done in Jesus and sending your son to die for us. Please may we in our church family here reflect that vision of unity around Jesus. And please would you help us as we then reach into a world that uh, is so often torn by these issues around failing to be able to understand each other, or being compartmentalized, or being in conflict. Please help us 
in our even in our sin and our fallenness and our with all our mistakes that we make please nevertheless use us to show the world a different way of uniting around your son and we pray in jesus name amen